Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Form Book Club. We're going to continue with the chapter we only got halfway through last time in The Spirit of Liturgy by Joseph Carmel Rassinger. This is an important chapter three in part two on the altar in the direction of liturgical prayer. But as we concluded our last session, Vivian asked a question off camera that both Joseph and I thought merited being on camera. So Vivian, would you repeat that? Well, in our last discussion, we were talking about the clericalization that took place with making the presider the center of everyone's attention. And then I mentioned the clericalization of lay people who now are in, enjoined to do all these things and now become part of the performance troupe. And then I asked, um, why did altar servers go from being a, a lower order, if that's the right word, and actually receiving some kind of ordination to being any lay person who signs up for the task? Yes. And in the pre-conciliar church, and for many centuries, there were major orders, which were bishop, priest, and deacon. And there were minor orders. And I meant not get them all here, but there was there was Porter, person that opened the door, the greeter, I guess. Uh, there was lect, acolyte, there was lector, there was exorcist, there was subdeacon. It was it was quite uh, a large group there. And of course, when you're in Rome and you're having an official pontifical liturgy or some big feast, maybe that made some sense. But you know, in a, in a rural French parish, what did that mean? And so. The council did call for a simplification of liturgy, and part of this complication was based on the, you know, monarchical forms of the court life in Europe and Byzantine forms of emperor uh, reverence and so on. And so, I, I mean, it could be argued both ways, but I think there was a, a reason, a, you know, legitimate reason to uh, simplify the liturgy and, and, and suppress the minor orders. But even now, theoretically, in order to serve at the altar, you should be in what they call an instituted acolyte. That is, you have to go through a process of preparation. Likewise for extraordinary ministers of the Eucharist. You just can't walk up here and do it. You're not supposed to. So but we've, you know, we've kind of moved into this uh, uh, sphere of informality where everything is, you know, your legs are crossed, you, you're wearing Bermuda shorts, you know, whatever it might be. I got nothing to think Bermuda shorts except I wouldn't wear them now because I'm I'm too I'm too proud to show my knees. Uh, I've, I've reached that age where you don't wear Bermuda shorts. Uh, anyway, yeah. So that <laughs> that was, I think, the reason Vivian why they did suppress the minor orders uh, after the council. Well, good. Let's go. We finished. Uh, we're, we're on page. 94 or 80 in the older book. And we've talked about the what Ratzinger says about the priest facing people makes him the center and uh, he closely communicating on himself. But then he asks the questions. He always 
anticipates the objections of reasonable people. And then he responds to them. So bottom of the page, new paragraph. But is this not all romanticism and nostalgia for the past? Next page, two lines down. Of course, we cannot simply replicate the past. Every age must discover and express the essence of the liturgy anew. The point is to discover this essence amid all the changing appearances. It would be a mistake to reject all the reforms of our century, that's the 20th, wholesale. So what are the changes he thought were particularly uh, propitious? When the altar was very remote from the faithful, it was right to move it back to the people. So that's one change that he, he, he welcomes. That especially, I mean, <laughs> when I was in uh, Regensburg, I uh, was at the priesthood seminar, I lived there, and across the street was the Dominicana Church, Church of the Dominicans. Beautiful Gothic church. Actually, it was designed by St. Albert the Great, who was the bishop of Regensburg at the time. And I think it was now. Anyway, it's, it's a glorious, very bright, kind of white stone, long, long nave and narrow. And all the women in Regensburg wanted to get married in that church because the procession was so long up that big aisle, you know. But then you had an altar rail, you had a choir, and the altar was way back. I mean, you can barely see it with opera glasses, you know. So it was beautiful. But again, that really separated the priest from the people and, and made it difficult for them to kind of psychologically participate in serving the Lord together. So he says it was right to move, uh, the, move it back to the people. A few lines down. It was also important clearly to distinguish the place for the liturgy of the word from the place of the popular Eucharistic liturgy. So in the master for the council, you've got the altar in the apse from our churches, away from the people. You've got the priest with the liturgy of the word at the altar, and he's actually reading the epistle and reading the gospel facing away from the people. Now, I've heard that, well, we're praying to God. Wait a minute, God doesn't need to hear scripture. <laughs> we need to hear that scripture. Plus the fact that is the didactic part of the Mass. There's a, there's a mistake to try and make the whole Mass didactic. There's a mysterious and mysterious, numinous part of it, which is not meant to be something always clear and distinct like Descartes would have it. So in the Mass before the Council, uh, again, the, after the priest would say the epistle and the gospel in Latin, then you'd have him come up or someone else, a deacon or whatever, then face the people and say to English, well, wait a minute. Is this, is this mass a communal celebration or, or what? Uh, so he thinks, and I agree with him, that the restoration of the distinction between liturgy of the word from liturgy of the Eucharist was an important you know, result of the liturgical movement and of the council and, and the reform of the liturgy. Uh, a few more lines down on that page. On the other hand, so he says, yeah, Bring the altar closer to the people. Bring, separate the amble from the altar. On the other hand, a common turning to the east during the Eucharistic prayer remains essential. This is not a case of something accidental, but of what is essential. How is that for emphasis, you know? I want to go to the, anything before the next page. Nope. Tell All right, three lines down on page 96 slash 82. As I see it, the problem with a large part of modern liturgiology is that it tends to recognize only antiquity as a source and therefore normative 
and to regard everything developed later in the Middle Ages and to the Council of Trent as decadent. That's a very important point. Uh, it's a delicate thing, and it's not easy to have a, a, a simple recipe to, to find a result. But the thing is, we can't go back to the Last Supper and the Mass in the first year of the church because we have hardly any information of what it was like. Even like when we know Last Supper was a past-tight meal anyway. But after that, what did they do? The records are very sparse. We know very little. But in, even more than that, <coughs> excuse me, there is such a thing as growth, development, and especially these people who uh, want to go back to antiquity as the norm and the form and the pattern are the same ones that talk about development all the time, progressive, development doctrine, and so on. There's got to be a deepening, uh, enriching of our knowledge of the doctrine and our way of accelerating the Eucharist. And that's been beautifully documented by Father Josef Jungmann, S.J., in his book, uh, um, what's, it's called, what is it called? Solemnities. Uh, I forget what it's called anyways, but it's on the Mass anyway. Uh, yes, well, I mean, again, there's a couple of things about this that I find intriguing, or eyebrow-raising. Now, first of all, it parallels the Protestant understanding of, of, of the history of the church, right? That basically everything starts to go wrong from Constantine onwards as a decadence, and, uh, and this decadence has to be put right. But the other aspect of it is it doesn't take into account that, 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 that the Council of Trent was an authentic reform. And there certainly was corruption and decadence in the church at the beginning of the 16th century, and the Council of Trent was a reform movement. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, the whole this, the whole idea that somehow or other the church had become corrupt, um, you know, human elements in the church are always corrupt to one degree or another. That's, that's, that's the concupiscence of what it is to be a human person. But the church is the mystical body of Jesus Christ. Is, is saved from that corruption. And, and so this sort of understanding that everything sort of went wrong and we've got to get back to some sort of earlier purity, it echoes the Protestant understanding. And I've got to say it again, and I, you can both yawn ostentatiously, but, you know, again, that, that, that for me, that in the metaphor of Tolkien, that you try to get back to you know, the, the sapling being, being more pure than a full-grown tree. And if you try to chop down the full-grown tree to find the sapling, you don't find the sapling, you kill the tree. We're talking about the church as a living, organic, in a, in a mystical sense of the word, a body of Christ moving forward through 20 centuries and counting, right, as one essential, unchanging in its essence thing. You don't chop it down trying to get back to an earlier form. Yeah, and, and it's a good analogy, too, because I think it also requires pruning. That is to say, as the tree grows, it, it, it's a divine human you know, interaction. And there's corruption, there's mistakes, or there's things which are cultural, things which are important for one culture and right. no longer important for another culture. So and it, that's a delicate thing. That's why the magisterium in the church. But for me, that's one reason why uh, I turn to Ratzinger as my guiding light, because he loves antiquity. He knows antiquity. He loves progress and development. He knows what true development looks like. He does not want to have a restitution of the past. He wants to have an organic development, you know. Well, he's a person who, who both is by his personality and by his brilliance uh, and depth of knowledge, is able much better than I can, or most people, or maybe anybody, to, to make that delicate decision. Well, what things we really should be now pruned back and, and, and what do we have to recognize as legitimate developments? And the starting point that you mentioned, love 
is is the key to the whole thing. How many people start reforming something so-called not out of love at all, but out of hatred, bitterness, resentment, uh, disgust, uh, you know, that that's not true reform. That's not taking care of the tree. That that's right. chopping that's that's chopping the tree down at the roots, right? Thinking you can start over better. And right. so that right. usually ideology. I mean it's it's where theology theology is reduced to ideology. Yeah. That's what happens when you may reduce to the Holy Spirit, the spirit of the age. You you cease cease being theological when you start becoming ideological. That's the problem. Joseph, in that course we taught on Chesterton. Did we not come across some passage where Chesterton says you can you show you show reform something if you love it something like that? Remember that? Well, it's that wonderful thing about the gatepost, which I think is basically saying if you want to keep something the same, you don't leave it alone. If you leave something alone, you leave it to a to to to, to a torrent of change. And he uses the metaphor of the gatepost. If you want to keep the gatepost good, so it holds up the gate, you have to be continually painting it. So you have to have this relationship with it, so you're renewing it. But you're only renewing it to keep it the same. You're not renewing it to make it something else. Okay, that's true. But I also think he talked about uh, you have to appreciate and love it and know what it's for in order to reform it. You can't. You, you, all right. I'm sorry. And, and, and you, sorry, your, mem- your, mem- your memory is no better than mine. Then. Okay. If you hadn't finished your thought, please, I'm sorry. He does, no. Chesterton does say that you shouldn't remove a barrier like a, on a road. Until you right. know what it's there for. Right. <laughs> you can remove it and then drive off the road, you know, that got washed out in a storm or something. <laughs> okay. Still on page uh, 96, the middle. But in our cases, we have said, what is at issue is not a romantic escape into antiquity, but a rediscovery of something essential. In which Christian liturgy expresses this permanent orientation. And I, you know, I keep pointing this out. He uses the word essential again and again and permanent. So there's some things which don't change. And one of them is facing the risen Lord, the rising sun, as well as the cross. I love the juxtaposition of those two words, permanent orientation. That should be, yeah. that should be sort of branded on everybody's understanding of the liturgy. His <laughs> humor comes up a few lines down. Are we not interested in the cosmos anymore? (laughs) Are we really hopelessly dependent in our own little circle? Is it not important precisely today to pray with the whole of creation? Is it not important precisely today to find room for the dimension of the future? We're hoping the Lord was to come again, to recognize again, and need to live the dynamism of the new creation as an essential form of liturgy? So, Father, you know, You've brought us along here, so now we're all nodding in agreement. Yes, of course, of course, of course. Well, why is this still such a matter of of blindness, obtuseness, rejection of turning toward the East? It, why is there still far fewer Christians praying like that than, than, than not? Joseph? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I really do believe that um, in every generation, there's a temptation, which is normally dominant, to follow fads and fashions in the spirit of the age than, than things which are unfashionable because they're permanent and perennial. So uh, in, in that sense, that's why the city of God is always, you know, ha- has less power uh, in temples terms. Obviously not in terms of the church, church uh, triumphant, but in, in terms of 
temporal terms, the church of man is always more powerful because more, more, more people follow the promptings of pride than the call of humility. And that's just, that's just a fact. So I think there's so many, so many Christians today, I say, I didn't put it that way, even this provocative Christians today are actually following the spirit of the age and not the spirit of Christ. And, and that I think is the problem. Most people are motivated by, by fashionable ideas rather than, than perennial truths. Yes, and here's the thing, specifically Catholic, there are people who love the church, deeply prayerful, Catholic people, who see the changes of, in the council, many of them is quite good, like the ones that Rasher mentioned, okay? There's also a lot of people who wanted the church to change. They were not satisfied what we were going before, uh, and not only wanted to make minor changes, but thought this is a chance for reformation, a renewal, a complete revolution, so to speak. So you have those two groups. And when the altar is then turned back, turned around, or the priest is facing the, the Lord again, it looks, it seems psychologically as a repudiation of the council. And so even good Catholics want to see the council in its best form continued. And those Catholics who are really dissenters or progressives, they do not want to go back. And so we've swallowed the lie, because as you said earlier, Second Vatican Council didn't say anything at all about versus popular. And yet the vast majority of people that, that like versus popular think it's what the Second Vatican Council taught. So they're being loyal Catholics and being true to the council. When they actually, the council never said anything about it at all. But like Father so, explained, there's this perception that this is what the council asked for, and therefore turning the altar around seems like a repudiation. And so cutting through that is going to be very challenging. It's going to just happen gradually, like, like it is. Yeah. That is what's happening more and more, but it's gradual. Yeah, I was just back in Virginia, Stay with my friend, Father Pekorski there, and in, uh, I forget the name of the place, this falls in, something falls, Virginia. Um, and his parish, it's a, it's a normal parish, but all the masses are at Orienta. And it's Novus Ordo, usually English, but it, well, there's one mass on Sunday, which is in Latin, Novus Ordo, and no one's complaining. Right. Right. Church is full, collections yeah. are good. There are three. We have, so we have three parishes here in the Greenville area that that, that, that all masses out of Orientum, and mass attendance is increasing. And my good friend Father Dwight Longenegger had, had to add an additional mass because there's no room. I mean, and, and, and so this this is the renewal. This is the authentic renewal. Yes. So next page ninety seven slash eighty three middle. Uh, a more important objection is uh, to having to restoring mass facing east this is a practical order ought we really to be rearranging everything all over again mm -hmm. nothing is more harmful to liturgy than a con constant activism even if it seems to be for the sake of genuine renewal and now here's where the uh, it's kind of just just um disconcerting that the progressives they don't mind forcing coercing things immediately with no preparation has happened in 1969. 
Whereas Benedict Rassinger wants to look at the people. We, we, look, we can't just make these changes so quick now. So they won't make a change like that and enforce it. He said, well, we don't want to do it that way. So it, it kind of is un, an unfair advantage to the people who don't have that sensitivity towards people's you know, feelings and stuff like that. What does he say, though? Down maybe 10 lines from below that. Where a direct common turning toward the east is not possible, the cross can serve as interior east of the faith. It should stand in the middle of the altar and be the common point of focus for both priest and praying community. In this way, we observe the ancient call, we obey the ancient call to prayer, conversi ad Well, okay. You know something? I think I might have said this during the course of this book discussion or another one. If it's not possible, nothing has to be changed whatsoever to the altars the way they are today. You just stand on the other side. That's all. I've done that around the country. Only twice have I found out in, in maybe 20 years now. One, it was difficult, and one was impossible. One was in Virginia at a high school chapel, and they, they had in front of the, this is before Teresa of, of Calcutta was canonized, but they had a big statue of her with a poor person there, big granite rocking right in front of the altar. Well, there's no way I could celebrate Mass facing east on that thing. The other is my home parish in Menlo Park, Church of the Nativity. It's a very narrow sanctuary. And it's kind of a, the altar is, is kind of narrow and fairly tall, and they've got these steps right in front of it. So because I'm 6'2", I used to be anyway before I started shrinking, uh, I could actually celebrate facing the Lord on that altar. But I had the, you know, the altar is about chin level, so it was a little difficult. But uh, apart from that, around the, I've never seen any other churches where you couldn't simply just say Mass from the other side. So... I do remember. I do remember. Church, I do remember a church in Ireland. I can't remember where it was in Ireland. Galway, maybe, where they actually had uh, the church, the, the altar in the middle of a of a perfectly cruciform, so it was impossible uh, oh. to to oh. face in any particular direction because everyone's going to be facing in different directions towards oh, the altar. Oh, to totally circular. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, utter intentional disorientation. What it yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But at least you can face east, and those who want to face east can do it. Uh, finally, on page 98 slash 84, this is a kind of an add-on point here. Moving the altar cross to the side to give an uninterrupted view of the priest is something I regard as one of the truly absurd phenomena of recent decades. Is the cross disruptive during Mass? Is the priest more important than the Lord? So he, he's, he's asking these questions in a rather uh, ironic way. What, what I love about that, Father, he's so gentle and he's very rarely ironic and even less often facetious. And that's about as rhetorical as he gets. Yes. <laughs> and it is. I mean, you know, it, 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 it's absurd. You know, um, yeah. And the good news is that slowly, gently dripping water makes stalactites and stalagmites the sizes of, uh, the sizes of that's true right? that's true that's true uh, and also with this anti-natalist view modern man has uh, the countercultural people who are having children Catholics having children tend to love tradition and love Benedict and love what he says and so, there, and they're multiplying, you know what I mean? 
they're being fruitful and multiplying. And so the, you know, time is on our side. Well, not on my side. I'm a, I'll see this from a different angle pretty soon. But I mean, right, right now, it's still hopeful here, down here below. Good. Well, th- this has been an important chapter. It's been a chapter with, with very deep meaning. I think we'll be able to continue from here on uh, going a little more quickly through the text. So I'll be back next session to go with chapter four. God bless everybody. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.